it sounds crazy, but all throughout my youth, we closed two months in the summer. So I think we were the only restaurant probably in the States that would close for that amount of time. Uh-huh. We would close last day of June. We would not open up until after Labor Day. So he took that time to enjoy going back to his native town. And when we were born, we would all go back as well. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On today's episode, we spoke with Tilde Mariani Jacquet, whose family owned Asti's and now owns the building that houses the acclaimed steak restaurant Strip House. Here's what Betsy Bober Pallavi, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about Asti's and the Mariani family. This podcast has a bit of a twist to it. I asked my lovely friend Tilde, who I went to high school with back in the 1970s, if she would be willing to tell the story of her dad's revered restaurant, Asti's. Tildy's dad came to America and followed his passion of combining good food and music in 1924. The restaurant was a fixture on 12th Street for some 75 years. People came from all over to listen to the professional opera singers who served them their food and entertained them nightly on the stage. Although it closed many years ago and the restaurant's strip house now resides in its space, it is still Tildy's family that owns the building and has kept the charm and memories of this Italian restaurant alive. The stories are endless and each one more endearing than the next. What a special time it was for Ellie and me to sit down with Tildy and listen as she reflected on her own childhood at Asti's while observing her dad as a business owner. My name is Tildy Mariani Jacquet. We're sitting here at the strip house today, uh-huh. formerly the Asti restaurant, my, which my dad opened up in 1925. And I so appreciate you all taking the chance to talk to me today. Well, thank you so much for being here with thank us. You. So you grew up around this space, right? I did. Okay. I did. And and your family owns the building? Yes, we do. And how yeah. did that come to happen? My dad, I think one of his friends had convinced him many years ago, I think it was in the 40s, to invest a little bit in properties. Little did he know how important that would have been to all of us who have, you know, kind of reap the benefits of being able to live rent-free in this area. Yeah. So, yes, he bought 11 East 12th Street and 13 East 12th Street, which is where the strip house is now situated. My dad was one of six siblings, and he was a little bit different than his brothers and sisters. He was quite the adventurer, and he always he came from a very small town in northwest Italy called Sant'Erenzo. He knew from very early on that he wanted something different, and he kind of dreamed about going to America one day, even though it was something that didn't he didn't think would ever happen. Um, everyone in my family worked in, in shipping, so they were all working on board ships. So he would always, he would take the opportunity to go with my grandfather as a stowaway. He was a clandestine on board my grandfather's ships, cargo ships that would travel from Genoa to New York to Buenos Aires. And one day in 1921, my dad was only 16 years old. He decided, without telling his dad, my grandfather, that he was just going to jump ship. They came into the New York Harbor, and my dad, I don't know how he did it, but he avoided Ellis Island altogether, just jumped off and somehow made his way in. He had the name of one person that my grandfather had met many years prior, you know, ended up sleeping on benches for a good two, three weeks before he was able to meet anyone and slowly begin to work as a dishwasher, to work as, um, you know, any kind of a cleaning person in, in restaurants mostly. What he always said was kind of um, saved him a little bit is that my dad, while being completely Italian, 
was six foot three, blonde, with green eyes, and didn't look Italian, which at the time benefited him because there was the wave of Italian immigration and they were not seen very well. So while he never changed his last name, it, it, it remained Mariani. He um, didn't look Italian and he learned English very quickly. Uh -huh. So he thinks that that gave him kind of an edge, kind of an advantage, but he had no money at all. He would stay on street corners. He had a very good voice, so he would st stand on street corners, would play an accordion and would sing. And people liked this and would give him money, obviously. One day, he explained to us, he would tell us that this couple walked by back and forth and kept looking at him and smiling at him. And he wasn't quite sure what they wanted. They stopped to talk to him. And it was a very wealthy couple that was originally from Sweden. And he happened to be the owner of what then became the Wall Street Journal, it was uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gunther. They liked my dad so much, they thought he was so spunky that they, they loaned him an amount of money to start something of his own. It wasn't a lot because he was very proud and didn't want to accept money from them. But he, you know, opened up a little place that he could just serve food to people. But what he loved even more was singing. So he thought, wouldn't it be great if I could incorporate music along with dinner? So he had this kind of novel idea of just singing himself. He was a baritone and quite decent baritone. And he also hired a soprano, uh, a tenor that would just come in, and he also hired a pianist. He bought this little rinky-dinky piano, and at the time, the pianist, whom we never met because this was way back uh, in the 20s, he was a blind pianist named, I believe his name was John. They would play and customers would come in, but my dad would always tell us that he had no money, no finances, so if people ordered a steak, he would say, no problem. He was very distinguished. He would run out to the butcher, get a steak, and come back in and cook it. <laughs> Um, and it, there were a lot of very, very funny stories because he, of course, the restaurant was a bit loud because he had a lot of opera and sometimes the neighbors would complain. So one time a neighbor complained, took my dad to court. Turns out the judge was an opera lover. So he said, dismissed, <laughs> he dismissed the case and said, you know what? You can continue to do whatever you're doing because it's great. However, in order to be able to make a little bit of money, my dad then as many people did, had to resort to selling wine, which now would be great, but then was illegal because it was during Prohibition, of uh -huh. course. So this part here was where he would have people come over. They would make their way to the basement, drink wine, and then they would go upstairs for a meal. Uh -huh. So he would tell us that he had a variety of people coming downstairs. It could even be police commissioners. <laughs> because now they've all passed, so it's okay. We're not getting anyone in trouble. Uh -huh. um, you know, anyone from any walk of life would come down to enjoy a glass uh -huh. of wine and then go back up. And for the record, we're sitting in the basement of this is is this twelve East Twelfth Street, this and the other one is thirteen, or this oh eleven. So this is eleven. Eleven and thirteen. And that's thirteen. Right. Okay. So we're in the basement exactly. of eleven. Exactly. And that's beneath. Um, the restaurant. Or they could then go back up to the restaurant the way we just came down. It's kind of a little emergency exit. Um, and uh, let's see. Which so, was sometimes used for emergencies. It was sometimes used <laughs> for emergencies. One time, because we had a lot of shows, my dad was an opera lover. So during the course of the evening, we would have people sing shows, tunes from Broadway shows or scenes from opera. And um, the, it was very interactive. So customers would often participate. Well, one time, 
there was a scene from an opera, Verdi opera called Trovatore. There's a scene where it's a funeral march, and we used to use proper candles, which then became a fire ha hazard. But at the time, there were. So a there was a fire that happened in the kitchen. So what my dad didn't want the customers to realize this was going on, so he had everybody processed down the emergency exit and out onto the street. So the customers are at the table, were not aware of anything. They thought it was great. They were all clapping. You know, there was a little mini fire going on in the kitchen. And um, he would have us all participate. He would get my brothers and sister and I up on stage, So, which was embarrassing. But also, <laughs> I, we treasure those memories. It was wonderful to grow up that way. I think we maybe skipped a little bit of the story where your dad, he had a small space, right, and was, was making food and running out to the, the store. And then yes. at some point, it turned into this, and it turned into Asti's. So how did that happen? Well, he started the smaller space. It was just the part down here and not all of the restaurant upstairs. I would need to see the blueprints of what mm -hmm. it once looked like, but it was a smaller space. How did Asti's get its name? When this couple had lent my dad some money, my dad originally for, I believe it's one or two years, had a partner from a region of Italy called Asti. Now, my dad was born in 1905. His name was Adolfo. Quite unfortunate name, but Adolfo Mariani. So born in 1905, that name had, you know, was neither, had no significance. Later on in the 20s and 30s, of course, he would never have called his restaurant Adolfo's because it, the connotation was terrible, obviously, yeah. for obvious reasons. Um, so what did he do? He took the name of his, of the region where his partner was from, which is Asti, which is where they make the spumante. It's a region in northern Italy, the Piedmont region, where they make Asti, the spumante. And um, that's what he did. He took that name. However, the partner was only there for two or three years. And then my dad, I think he bought him out and it be okay. he became sole owner. However, this gets a little bit complicated. The wife of his former partner took a liking to my dad. And <laughs> my dad was refusing her advances. Say, her advances and um, she blew the whistle on him. He got sent to Ellis Island because now she reported him. I, I don't think he was quite legal yet in terms of citizenship. So she reported him and he got sent back to Ellis Island. Or actually got sent to Ellis Island because he had never been. <laughs> right, for the first, time. the first time. Yeah. Now he got sent there the second time. Um, he was there for, I think, six months to a year. I'm not quite sure the amount of wow. time. In a kind of a dungeon-y sort of area. And, you know, made a lot of friends from Eastern Europe. The bulk of his friends spoke Yiddish. And my dad became fluent in Yiddish because many of his friends were from Russia, were from Poland, mm -hmm. that did speak Yiddish. So my dad was quite fluent in Yiddish, which we learned later on because he would speak it whenever he could. And people always got a kick out of that. <laughs> so he stayed there for not that long and came out again. And I don't think he ever saw his former partner and his wife again <laughs> after that. I would say maybe not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what happened to the space while he was on Ellis Island? What happened to the... The restaurant so that he had started. That's a very good question. He entrusted the restaurant for a while, and I believe it's that time he yeah. was in Ellis Island, to his very good friends, one of whom was Gil Gallagher, who was then, he was in the original logo picture. Um, he was one of his dearest friends, and he was a baritone as well, mm -hmm. and sang with the Met. My father trusted him more than anyone. So I don't think he would have ever trusted it to anyone else. So Gil took over for that period of time. And we remained friends long after my dad passed away. We remained friends with Gil and his whole family, because Asti was really a family. We had the waiters, 
um, whose families we became friendly with, the cooks as well. They were all from our region. At the time, we had many restaurants, uh, many waiters and people in the kitchen who were from the Northwest. And um, we were really one big family. And I, I remember this growing up. Did you help to bring them over or did it just happen? Yes. So the word would get out that my dad was already established in New York. And from our town and the near nearby towns or nearby regions, uh, people would say, let's go to New York because, you know, um, Adolfo Mariani is in New York. Let's go see if we can maybe help out. So he got a lot of people situated both as waiters, as chefs. Sometimes he would even get people taxi driver jobs uh-huh. or you know, delivery people jobs. So he was able to help a lot of people from his area, which uh-huh. made him very happy. And one time I remember there was one of the only times there was a, a general waiter strike in the city. Now, we, my dad believed in unions, so our, our um, waiters at the time uh, were part of a union, and everyone got along well. There were never any problems, but there was one time that there was a waiter strike. And our waiters felt terrible because, of course, they were part of the strike, they felt bad because we were, we were all very friendly, and they were outside with their, um, you know, with their signs, and they they felt bad because, for us it was kind of exciting because my dad, I remember he called us and he actually came to get us out of school. We all drove down to the city and we helped being waiters. So my brothers, my sister, and I, we all worked in the restaurant that night, and it was over the course of a weekend. I think it was maybe one or two days, three tops. I was never so excited as actually serving people at the table, which never happened again because I think whatever matters arose, they were always able to settle them. And so there are waiters, our beloved waiters, who are also our friends and whom we considered uncles, really, were outside, um, and there we were inside working. And at the end of the night, the first night we worked, um, my dad got up and made a little announcement saying, I'm very sorry for any inconvenience, and everyone stood up and clapped. And said, said, but, you know, I hope you don't mind that my kids were the waiters. And everyone got up and clapped. And it was so, it was so rewarding. And I remember I must have been a, maybe a 10th or 11th grader in high school. I just remember thinking this is just the best moment ever. Tildy, I would love to hear some stories about growing up in and around the restaurant and with your family. Because we live on Long Island, for us it was such a treat to come into the city to visit the restaurant and we would sleep upstairs for the weekend and my dad would get us involved in you know in the the various um acts let's say that that were going on in the restaurant and musical acts and he would very often uh, there was one particular thing he would do with carmen we had uh, one of our singers would dress up like a bull another one would dress up like a toreador and he would you know parade through and he would sometimes go up to the tables and sometimes give quite a fright to the customers (laughs) who were pleasantly surprised by someone dressed up like a bull going around the table he would then proceed to sing many arias from Carmen well sometimes he would have us get dressed up so it would either be my brother I was I was always stuck in the back end of the bull for some reason, my little sister was a little bit too young to be participating. So my, my older brothers were always the front part, which caused a lot of conflict because I said, guys, can I please be the front part of the bull? They'd all say, you're too little. You just have to follow us. So one time I, I got very angry because 
my one of my brothers was running too fast and we were we were a bull divided in two kids we had like a bull outfit I thought that's it I just stopped where I was I sat in the middle of the <laughs> restaurant and just crossed my arms and started to cry and said I'm not moving and my dad would always tell me that the customers got up and started to clap because they saw this little girl who was crying just very obstinate not moving where she was because I was sick and tired of being the back end of the bowl. So I don't remember if I was promoted to the front end, but I do remember <laughs> my dad coming to pick me up, and I vaguely remember people clapping for me. Because they probably felt so sorry for me. But um, it was fun. We Whenever we were so happy to have our friends come down and join us because we could get them all dressed up for the different numbers that we would do because we had um, different costumes for different operas. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of fun, and my dad would love to invite anyone who, you know, anyone at the time that was working on ships, they would stop in the New York Harbor, whether it was the Costa Cruises or the, um, the, the uh, Italia Cruise Lines, which I think is no longer in existence, the Costa and the, um, the um, Carnival Cruise Lines, yeah. or the cargo ships. And many of the people that worked there were from our town or the outlying areas, and they would, they would come by and have uh, a meal. They would come by and have a meal with us. So my dad would always save one table in the back for all the locals, because he would love to be able to treat them, and it was a, it was, it was, um, it was really special for us. Could you share maybe one or two stories of some of the customers? Maybe not necessarily the normal customers, but the the fun ones, the interesting ones. <laughs> yes, the more colorful ones. Yes. Well, because as you know, as we said, this is now New York in the 1930s, uh, maybe early 1940s, and so many of the Italian families, of course. Um, some of whom were customers of my dad's, were involved in activities which maybe weren't completely legal for the time, let's Mm -hmm. say. And while my dad luckily stayed out of everything, they did like going to my dad's restaurant. So my dad couldn't say no because they were, quite frankly, good customers. And And also quite powerful. (laughs) And also quite powerful, so he wouldn't say no. And I think, in a way, they protected my dad most probably. Um, You know, they saw this young guy who who was very you know, very eager to work hard and had his own business. And so I think they, they liked him and they, they never got him involved in anything, but they were patrons of the restaurant. Well, my dad would tell us a story, which we loved because we kind of had this romanticized version of what was going on of um, a person who came to the restaurant and said, you know, tonight we're going to ask you to sing a song. You sing a song, no matter what happens, do not stop. So already my dad thought, hmm, okay, so I'll do that. Well, sure enough, they asked him to sing a song. My dad got up. He said his knees were shaking. He started to sing. People came into the restaurant, grabbed two or three people that were sitting, took them outside. They were gunshots. And my dad kept singing because he thought, oh, boy, my life depends on this. I will keep singing. They, they, he heard, uh, you know, screeches, cars screeching, cars screeching, people being taken away, and then police came. 10 minutes later and everything was all done and my dad just kept singing I said daddy were you singing he said yeah I didn't stop I just kept singing because I didn't know what to do so that happened but part of what the times were you know and um we of course as kids thought it was awesome I mean in our own mm-hmm. mind we we couldn't understand what that really meant my dad he worked up until a month before he passed he was 75 when he passed um, in 1980. And at that point, my older brother, Augie Augusto, decided to take over because he was the one that was the most involved. My brother, who's just um, 
two and a half years older than me, is Lorenzo Mariani. He's a stage director and lives in Italy. So he, while he was very, uh, very tied to the restaurant, had a close bond, he would have never taken over because he lives, he's lived in Italy since he graduated college. Mm -hmm. My sister um, owns a very successful PR firm, Angela Mariani. So she also loved the restaurant but wouldn't have taken over. That left my brother, Augie. I was actually at the time living in Italy myself. So for, um, for many years, my brother took it over up until from 1980 to 1988, at which point my, my husband and I moved from Italy back to New York. Mm -hmm. So my husband, Gianni, uh, took over with my brother. And together they, they kept the restaurant going until the year 2000 when we gave it to new management. So for 12 more years, the two of them ran the restaurant. It became very apparent to us that it was no longer possible to close two months in the summer because while my dad was able to do it for so many years from 1925 on, um, it was difficult because we would have had to you know, pay all of our distributors, find jobs for all the waiters because my dad took that very seriously and he always made sure that they either had unemployment or got jobs for singers and waiters during the summer. That was a lot to expect of them to not be working for two months and then come back. So it just became financially too much of a hardship, at which point we kind of got together as a family with my brothers and my sister, and we thought, and John and me, and we thought, you know, we're better off becoming the landlords and giving it to new management. As, as hard as it was and as heartbreaking as it was, we knew it was the right decision mm -hmm. because we would have had to stay open all year long. Mm -hmm. And the restaurant business is tough. It's very rewarding, and it's it's got so many advantages to having a restaurant and so many bright and sunny moments of pleasing your customers and meeting so many people. But there, along with that come a lot of hardships, you know. Mm -hmm. So we, we then closed December of 1999, going into 2000. We really didn't publicize it much, so it came as a surprise to a lot of our patrons. I think we decided we would just kind of make a nice quick exit and we had of course informed our whole staff and we had a lot of people writing us notes leaving notes under the door because a lot of customers would come by and it was it was sad but we didn't want to make too much of a big deal do you remember what any of the notes said that were slipped under the door when ASCII's closed some of the people were saying where are you guys we came by there's no one here or oh. people were putting uh, post-its on the windows outside it must have come as a big shock because yeah. They obviously could see into the restaurant, although we had a little curtain, but they they must have tried to get in and and couldn't get in. And I remember thinking, actually, if it had been up to me, I might have done it maybe a little differently, although I respected my, my brother and my husband because they had been working there and they thought this might be mm -hmm. the most, uh, how, how could I say, maybe the classiest way to just kind of leave. Mm -hmm. um, and we then, um, I believe we... we did publicize we, we did write a note outside and said thank you to all of our patrons mm -hmm. because it then became apparent to us that too many people were wondering why we weren't open so we then did write some kind of note and posted it mm -hmm. outside and it was difficult we all had to go through a transition because yeah. having grown up in the restaurant and walking by it every day I think it was difficult especially for my sister Angela my brother Augie because they live above it while I was living elsewhere at the time, as was my other brother, they physically were going by the restaurant every day. So for the time that it was closed, it was um, quite difficult, mm -hmm. they, they would say. And at that point, it was vacant just for a few months, uh, after which we 
my brother had interviewed many different people, and when the Peter Glazier group decided to come in, they took care of all the renovation. And when it reopened, it was fun again, because then we saw the new space, and we all went to the inauguration. So um, you, you learn to move on. How do you think that Strip House compares to Asti's? I think they have done a wonderful job. I really do. They've It's a beautifully decorated restaurant, and they've, they've kind of... Um, I, I think that it's it's kind of gained a lot of popularity. I know that Zagat named it one of the best steakhouses many years That's ago. Right. Yeah. Um, people seem to really enjoy it. And I have to admit, when I'm out walking my dogs at night and people walk by, if they look at the speakeasy and, and I can see them talking to themselves saying, hmm, I wonder what this is. I go right up to them and say, I can tell you. And I tell them very briefly so I don't bore them or I don't stop them from going elsewhere you know <laughs> I tell them the story very quickly about my dad and people really I think they really appreciate it that's when I see people stop in front and they're asking themselves what was this before and I, I'm always happy to contribute mm-hmm. you know anything I can and one aspect of the decoration is carried from Asti's so the the, yep so and the walls are covered in pictures mm-hmm. especially in the upstairs restaurant yes and many of them date back to pictures that my dad um actually bought at auctions. So some of them go all the way back to 1890. Could be a, a singer, a conductor, a stage, a stage designer from 1890. And my dad, of course, opened up the restaurant in 1925. So some of his pictures, um, for instance, one example is Arturo Toscanini, who was a very famous Italian conductor. Um, these pictures date back to the early 20s. So my dad uh, used to love to go to auctions and pick up pictures when he could. So those, of course were not from, um, those were just acquired by my dad, but very few. The rest are all customers that would come to the restaurant who were mostly singers, um, directors. We have a good amount. There were also actors or people in the sports world. You know, we have pictures of Babe Ruth, of Mickey Mantle, of uh, Lou Gehrig. I believe the Lou Gehrig one was also acquired because he would have passed away. I don't think my dad actually met him. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a lot of other a lot of other pictures of Pavarotti, of Andrea Bocelli, Placido Domingo. Those were pictures of more recent opera singers. And my dad continued to kind of cover the walls along with pictures of the whole family. So interspersed with the opera pictures, he would have maybe one whole Christmas picture of our family. And he would make it into a gigantic photo to put in between all the other photos. Uh, of his hometown, which he loved so dearly. People in our little town were very proud of my dad because he had kind of made something of himself, let's say. And he would often bring singers from New York back to the hometown. And that was always such a, such a treat for, for the people in the town who would see these you know, opera singers from New York come and just sing. One year he had the cast of Porgy and Bess Oh my gosh. Came to our town and they, you know, delighted people with their songs. And it was just, it was wonderful um, because he managed to, with what, what he had made of himself, he managed to also help the town. He, you know, he helped rebuild the church. He helped put pews in the church. He helped build like a little uh, rest area for the elderly people to go and sit at by the marina. So he did a lot of, a lot of good for the town as well. Mm-hmm. He was able to bring presents back and forth because back then our town was, was quite, how can I say, not quite modern, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, very quaint and very authentic, but not a lot of, um, um, it wasn't, let's say, it hadn't caught up to a lot of the bigger cities. Mm-hmm. So my dad would come in the summer and he would bring all sorts of electrical appliances to all of his relatives. And this is all thanks to what he had been able to 
to make of himself here and what he was able to kind of put aside financially to be able to help people. He was very generous that way. What made you decide to come back and live in New York? Because you had been living in Italy for a while, exactly. and then I know your husband was running the business. Yeah. After I graduated in 1979, I, I was um, living in New York City with my mom and dad, actually, for a few months and working in the city. When my dad became ill, and eventually he passed away in April of 1980, I then just, I had already spoken with him before him getting sick um, that I wanted to move back to Italy because I was dating John Me, who would then become my husband. So um, along with my mom and dad, who were quite happy for me to make this decision, that's what I did. I went through with my original plan. I moved back in um, April of 1980 to Italy and um, got married and had my first child in Italy. And in 1988, we moved back to New York City, where we lived for five years. I had eventually, throughout this all, I had three more children. Mm -hmm. We moved from the city. We moved up to Westchester, then to Connecticut. Then eventually we moved back to Italy, and to make a long story short, I lived in Florence for eight years, from 2007 to 2015, um, and then in 2015, eventually we moved back to New York uh, with two of my kids, because my two older children were already working, my my third actually was, was studying in London, my youngest learned that she had gotten into NYU, so we then moved back in 2015 where she entered as a freshman and graduated this year in 2019. So that was my decision to come back to New York. And it made a lot of sense. Two of my siblings are here. Um, My kids, all four of my kids are now all in New York City. So I'm quite fortunate. And um, just recently I have a little grandson. So I'm quite the fortunate mom to have all my kids near me. And this is the place to be for me right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite happy to be back Mm -hmm. in New York City. And when you were in Italy, you were living in the, was it in the same town that your your, your dad and mom were both from? When I originally had moved back, yeah. I moved back to Sant'Irenzo, yeah. which is a little coastal town in uh, northwest Italy, about 100 kilometers south of Genoa and about 130 kilometers west of Florence. And this is a town where my mom and dad were both born, and we go back there many generations back. We trace it all the way back hundreds of years, actually. Wow. And um, I moved there. When I moved there more recently in 2007, I chose Florence because my two younger kids were uh, elementary and high school, and I wanted them to have a bilingual education. So we chose Florence because um, it's it's quite close to where we live. We, we then um, took up residency in Florence, and they were attending the international school in Florence where I was teaching kindergarten. So it was a wonderful eight years we had there uh, where I was teaching kindergarten, and they were... They were actually attending ISF, and they graduated from there. So that was a wonderful time of my life, too. And it's I'm back to the original schedule of teaching because I now am teaching, and I go back to Italy in the summertime. So I'm kind of back to the way it used to be where I get two months to spend off. two yep. months off yeah, <laughs> back in Sant'Irenzo. Okay. So it's nice. And my kids enjoy it as well because we're all very connected. So we're all going to be there this summer at one point. Okay. So we all kind of overlap. Which is nice. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The area of Italy we live in is known for being very hilly and oh. rocky. Um, the Cinque Terre is the most well-known, and that's along our same coastline. It's only a 10-15 minute train ride from where we live. So everything is built upwards. And my house is actually 180 steps up 
and um, you can only walk it. You cannot bike it. You can't go by car because it's part of the um, national. Let's say it's it's landmark. Uh-huh. So um, you're because of urbanization laws, they can't. It's protected. Build any roads. And, it's mm-hmm. protected, as are the Cinque Terre. Much along that coastline is thank God because it's it's beautiful. So it's we like it to be preserved that way. Except when I have a lot of shopping, <laughs> so I have to do that day by day. Or I have a lot of potluck dinners <laughs> where everyone brings their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's beautiful. It's got a very mm-hmm. pretty view once you're up because we we live in an area called the Golfo dei Poeti, mm-hmm. which means the Gulf of Poets. A lot of famous poets live there: Byron, Keats, Shelley. D.H. Lawrence, in the towns that surround Sant'Erenzo, Lerici, Dell'Aro. A lot of famous people got their inspiration there because it is quite beautiful and relatively unspoiled mm-hmm. compared to uh, the Cinque Terre, which is much more crowded, mm-hmm. or Portofino, which is much more fancy. We're a less fancy but very authentic mm-hmm. area of Italy. Mm-hmm. So that's, we're lucky to be to be from there, I think. <laughs> what you said about the shopping makes me think of, um, I spent... I spent a summer in Bologna, and uh-huh. I couldn't get over how tiny the shopping carts were in the grocery stores because Americans have these huge shopping carts, and you know, there, there's no, you're not supposed to do your monthly shopping. You're supposed exactly. to do daily shopping. You're very right. <laughs> it makes everything fresher. You, it's a, you waste much less. It's so much better. It, yeah, it is, but absolutely. yeah, but especially if you have to walk up 500 yes. stairs to get home. Yeah. I would love to ask about how you've seen this area change. You know, your dad's home base is Italy and then yours being New York. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed? Growing up, we lived, we lived on Long Island, but uh-huh. we would come in very often to the city. Greenwich Village was considered very bohemian at the time. Uh, this continued for many, many years. I think what, what has happened in most recent years is that the village has become uh, even trendier. So whereas it still appeals to kind of a bohemian crowd, it's become a little trendier and maybe um, more expensive to live in. Whereas I think at the time, rents were probably much lower. And yes, people would all flock here because of the music, because um, there were a lot of places that played jazz in the in the area. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the opera that they could hear at the Astes, they would go to other places such as Arthur's Tavern, which is right. still there. There were a lot of places in the village that featured jazz music. But I think now it's, it's not as quaint, maybe a little uh-huh. more elegant, the area. And um, it has much more of a student vibe because of uh-huh. NYU, you know, and prior to that, it was just bohemian and very artsy and music-oriented. And what do you think Asti's contributed? I think it was really considered a landmark because after the opera, people would come down, and my memory of it was that women would come down in these beautiful long dresses, men would come down in tuxes, and we we had an after-dinner, after-opera menu. So people would come down as late as 12, 1 in the morning, and at the time, we did not close until 4 or 5 in the morning. I don't remember the I don't remember the late closings up until four and five. I remember it closing at about three, but prior before we were born, my dad would tell stories that they would stay open till almost morning. Wow! Um, because people would stay around that long. It's a community space. Was, That's yeah, what that is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was um, very elegant at the time. People could not come unless they had a jacket and tie. Women, of course, couldn't wear jeans. Jeans weren't even something that people would wear out to dinner anywhere probably at the time you know throughout the years we we had to adapt because then we became a lot more touristy as tourism increased in manhattan 
in New York City in general, we had to cater to many different kinds of groups, groups mm -hmm. of, you know, 70 Norwegians or 50 Spaniards. And so, of course, they would come uh, dressed as they were for the day because they had been out all day. So it became more sporty, more casual. Uh -huh. We weren't requiring the elegant kind of attire that we had once upon a time. Uh -huh. And do you think that that transition was welcomed by by your family, by your father? I think so. I think he was very adaptable. You know, he was very old world, but so progressive and so modern in so many ways. So I think he learned to adapt because he saw what kind of needed to be done and what he needed to do in order to keep attracting a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I remember in the mid to late 70s, my dad passed away in 1980. But in the 70s, I remember up until oh, close to my dad's passing away, we were so busy at night that my dad would take a large, a very long appetizer tray and would just wheel it out to 12th Street. And we sometimes had, we had crowds of people all the way from 5th coming into the restaurant and he would tell jokes and talk to people all the way. We were a little embarrassed by that, but then looking back, <laughs> I thought it was quite genius because we would follow him. I would always be the first one to say, can I follow you, daddy? He would walk out with these big trays and just offer food to people. So wasn't that wasn't probably great for profits, but it was it was keeping people amused while they it were probably kept to come people in. coming back too. Absolutely. So and in the end, he did that for many years, and that was a lot of fun and mm -hmm. would attract a lot of people. Maybe some of whom didn't even come into the restaurant. <laughs> oh, thank you. But it was fun. And where was your mother through all of this? My mom was my dad's second wife. Uh -huh. His first wife. Um, Mary, Mariani, was quite participant in the restaurant. They together did not have children, so okay. I don't have any half-siblings, but she was his first wife. Actually, I take that back. His first wife was a woman <laughs> he met for a green card because okay. they all had to have arrangements back yeah, then. So his then, we believe it was a girlfriend, had agreed for maybe a small amount to marry him, and she did the same thing for some of the waiters <laughs> after that. Um, not dating them, but she just had just, a financial yeah. arrangement. But my mom is from the same town my dad is from, Northwest Italy. And the, how they met is kind of funny because my dad was 20 years older than my mom. And my dad traveled on ships going back from New York. Um, he didn't like to fly much. And my grandfather on my mom's side was a maitre d' on board ocean liners. My dad, on one of his trips, met his future father-in-law. He knew him from the town. He said, oh, how are you doing, Angelo? He said, oh, fine, let me show you a picture of my daughters. <laughs> so the story says that my dad saw a picture of my mom and said, well, isn't she pretty? Now, you know, some years later, he married her. And um, he was well-respected in my town, so it wasn't too much of a scandal, even though he was 20 years older. And he brought her back to New York. And then all of us were born. My siblings and I were all born in um, in the States. Mm -hmm. And my mom, while we were growing up in, in on Long Island, she wasn't as participant, um, let's say, as my dad, because she wouldn't go down every day. She would go uh -huh. down on the weekends. She would help out. Sometimes right. she would make the lasagna. She would make some of the desserts. But my mom really mostly took care of us. And now the restaurant is taken care of outside of the family, right? Outside of the family. It's gone from the first group that took over was the Peter Glazier group. Uh -huh. They had also opened up Michael Jordan's Steakhouse at the same time. After that, it was Be Our Guest was the next group that took over. After that, it was Landry's. And the, uh, the current managers also own casinos in Las Vegas. So they own the Golden Nugget. They are, uh, I believe we might be 
one of the only restaurants that they manage. They mostly manage casinos. But there are two other locations of Strip House, right? So there's one on 44th in New York. Exactly. And there's then there's one in Las Vegas. There's one in Las Vegas. There used to be other, uh, they had opened, I think they they um, got a little bit too ambitious at first, and they opened one, I believe, in Houston. There was one in San Juan, Puerto Rico. There was one, there were a few other locations, which they then closed. So now we just have the one in the Times Square District yeah. and Las Vegas. Considering that the space has been so important to your family, how did you or, or your brother make the decisions about who came into the space after your family left it? So he really wanted to preserve the integrity of the restaurant and sat down with a lot of different people to speak about what they would do, how they would kind of take over, what their vision of the new restaurant, the new space would be. And that's how he met the first group, Peter Glazier Group, and he liked their idea. And he, he went with it. We talked it over amongst all siblings to just make sure that we were all on board. And they hired Rockwell Associates, who was um, a well-known architecture firm. They very nicely invited my two brothers, my sister and I, to the meeting where we would learn a little bit more about the restaurant. They were going to show us all the designs, uh, the blueprint, and um, they were showing us all the designs. And then they were going to unveil the name. So we're all waiting because we don't know it's a surprise. And he says, and... The new name of the restaurant is going to be the Strip House. And there we were, kind of, huh, we didn't know what to say about that. We, we weren't quite sure. And they said, like the strip steak. And we thought, ah, oh. we all breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> it was very funny. And it was, and we've been very, very happy with the, all the, you know, the various managements. They've done a very wonderful job. Yeah. And um, not to mention the quality of food is fantastic. People come here from all over for the state. Hildy, if I could ask you to just give me some thoughts on the, the current restaurant world. You're living in New York. You're eating in New York. What does that look like today? We love eating out, so I do like to try new restaurants every week. I would say that, from my observation, there are fewer restaurants that are solo-owned. And most rest, you don't find a lot of the mom and pops restaurants anymore. You find um, there are still some, but normally they're they're a larger restaurant group, and which is not a bad thing. It, that's just how things are. I think it's financially it makes more sense yeah. really. And when I go out to eat, I very often will ask how long has this restaurant been there. I try to get a little bit of the history myself in just one or two sentences because I'm always interested to know what was there before. Because things, you know, things change. The landscape is always changing. So many restaurants we go to were something else five years ago. Um, some have stayed the course of time because some are, you know, that good. But I think that I wouldn't say it's a negative thing. I would just say that it's become, well, it's become hugely more expensive, I think, eating out. There's a lot more competition, I think. And there's a lot more variety at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, and if I could make one observation is that Italian restaurants have gotten better and better and better. Because back to when my dad started, it was very old world Italian. So while my, my ancestors in Italy were fabulous cooks, I think people back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, probably not until the 80s, did people really want excellent Italian cuisine. I think it used to be a um, little less detail-oriented. Mm -hmm. So they were offering a limited amount of dishes. They weren't really paying as much attention to the cuisine. So in that sense, I think it's gotten better mm -hmm. with time because a lot of excellent chefs have come over to New York mm -hmm. to work in restaurants. And 
a lot of regional chefs. Whereas once it was kind of the same kind of food in all the restaurants. Now you really find the regional restaurants mm -hmm. that serve, you know, Puglia food, serve food from Italy, from Liguria, from uh -huh. Toscana. So they, they pay attention to detail. Much and more. over time, how was your relationship to the other Italian restaurants in New York? I appreciate it. I, I would never compare because I think my experience was such a unique one because it was, yes, it was a restaurant, but it was a family to me. And it was to all of us, to my siblings, to my kids, especially my older kids who remember it well. Um, I think it was something different than your average restaurant because we incorporated music and food. And so it was kind of a, a, a unique experience, I think, for everyone. So I would never compare. I really appreciate every restaurant I go to. The dining experience in New York is something to behold. I mean, there's. Mm -hmm. I've now tried to go to every borough. Mm -hmm. Not as much as Betsy, who <laughs> is an expert, but I try to really take advantage of what, of what New York has to offer, you know, in the culinary world. <laughs> I think what the Asti meant and will always mean, it's our legacy and we'll always hold it dear to our hearts because we were all connected to it in some way. And whether it be my brother, the stage director, because he, his love for opera, my older brother, Augie, because he actually ran the restaurant. My sister and I have amazing memories of, you know, spending so much time in the restaurant, helping the restaurant in the beginning of the year before Labor Day when it opened and my dad would have us, you know, clean all the clean the frames one by one and that was a memory in and of itself you know we, we've tried to pass on all these memories to my kids and my nieces and my nephew as well so we will kind of be talking about this for generations to come with our own kids and hopefully they'll do the same with their kids so it's I think it's a part of New York history thanks so much for listening my name is Ellie Cody and this has been Manhattan Sideways if you want to learn more about the small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NY Sideways.